Bay Area underground hip-hop stuff. And you're listening to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, not the Ron Paul show, as uh, my man Abe and I were rapping about. Abe Grace, say what up to the good people. How's it going out there, listeners? Yeah, listen, um, we, we, we've been, the thing, we dialogue off air and we get carried away and it's like, you know what, we need to frame this dialogue on the air because it's, it's useful and productive. And, um, the thing we were talking about and the thing that's really kind of got the Twitter, Twitter sphere abuzz, um, is, is that this war of words emerging between the two great left public intellectuals of our time. Noam Chomsky and Slavoj Zizek. Now, I, I just, for disclosure's sake, uh, I've had actually Noam Chomsky on this show some five years ago. Um, and I've also published an article in the International Journal of Zizek Studies. So there's a kind of, there's a, a little tension kind of going on within my kind of academic self between these two great thinkers that have had actually, uh, you know, a profound influence on me. But uh, I thought maybe, you know, Kick, kick, kick it off over to uh, to Abe, thinking about what Chomsky has meant uh, as a figure, as a public intellectual of the left. Yeah, and I think it's important important to point out, you know, these aren't just the preeminent left intellectuals. This is like, um, well, when we say left, we mean the real left, but what the sort of centrified media would call it would be mm -hmm. the extreme left. Yeah, radical subversive. And and yeah, <laughs> and uh, these guys, you know, they're. Their difference in philosophy, the argument that this kind of boils down to, is a really important um, thing for you know left-leaning intellectuals to understand because it is a, a real dichotomy. We, and we don't want to be the kind of you know life of Brian, the new Judea front versus the new front of Judea kind of leftist. There's, yes, there's plenty of sectarianism on the left, but it's it's that Fight Club metaphor uh, that Zizek likes to use of beating the shit out of yourself first. You know, having no illusions about your own position uh, than, than allowing you to maybe, maybe make that kind of minimal ethical political gesture. And but I guess, um, yeah, just to summarize Chomsky, I mean, I guess uh, I'm right on, well, both of us are right on the cusp of um, the millennial generation and yeah. whichever one it is that preceded that. Is that generation Y? You know uh, what? I teased, I teased Aaron yesterday because he had Shearer on the air on the breakfast and uh, Aaron was saying, uh, you know, uh, t t telling David Shearer, listen, you know, you should have brought up the GCSB in the debate before the housing policy. And I said, well, Aaron, maybe that's the thing that makes me uh, the, whatever the pre-millennial thing was, because you know that you know millennials don't give a shit about housing because they don't think they'll ever be able to afford a house. This is uh, <laughs> anyway. We're whatever. holding on to uh, yeah. nostalgic notions. Absolutely. So it's like I think it's post '83. Post '83, you're a millennial. Yeah. So yeah, I'm right. I'm right on the cusp there. But um, Chomsky, to me, really like my political awakening you know, occurred in my late teens, and Chomsky was the guy back then. This is pre-Seattle, you Ditto. know. Ditto. Um, and, and he is really um, sort of very based in logic and deliberation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the way you describe Zizek of, you know, beating ourselves first, I guess Chomsky comes from more of a uh, traditional academic paradigm, being from the East Coast universities, where he, he really feels like he understands, you know, his point is correct. He's coming from a point of truth, I guess. Empiricism and rationalism. He's, I mean, he is a social scientist. He's a linguist. He's one of, you know, he's one of the preeminent linguists in the field. And, and for, for Chomsky, uh, you know, politics, political theory should be hard tested 
fact, an, an empirical fact, the way you would rationally deduce in, in science. Um, so he's a, he's, he's a hyper empiricist. And this is really, this, this is, this is the kind of, the split. And, uh, and I just maybe kind of backtrack and kind of give you the blow for blow a little bit. And, and, and like I said, you can find this up on at OJUTEL or at Radio 1 on the Twitters. Um, but basically what happened uh, early this year, Noam Chomsky gave an interview to Veterans Unplugged, uh, online media site in the U.S., and he called Lacan and Zizek perfectly self-conscious charlatans, and that Zizek is an extreme example, and that, quote, he doesn't see anything in what he's doing. Now, I, I think I'll play for you guys right now uh, Chomsky's direct quote on the matter, and then we'll come back. What you're referring to is what's called theory. And the reason when I said I'm not interested in theory, what I meant is I'm not interested in posturing uh, using fancy terms like uh, polysyllables and uh, pretending that theory when you have no theory whatsoever. So there's no theory in any of this stuff, not in the sense of theory that anyone's familiar with in the, the sciences or any other serious field. Uh, try to find in all of the work you mentioned some principles uh, from which you can deduce conclusions uh, that yield uh, empirically testable propositions uh, where it all goes beyond the level of uh, you know, something you can explain in five minutes to a 12-year-old. See if you can find that when the, when the fancy words are decoded. I can't. So I'm not interested in that kind of posturing. Is an extreme example of it. So the uh, it's an interesting kind of interesting kind of quote there. Uh, it kind of sounds like a first year that doesn't like doing wanky theory in uh, at university. But strong words from a guy like Chomsky. No doubt, no doubt. So uh, Zizek was then asked in a public lecture about this. Now this has been an ongoing thing. Uh, Chomsky's always maintained that Lacan, uh, the French French Saint psychoanalyst uh, was a charlatan. This is kind of nothing new, but Zizek said that, well, you know, for an empiricist, uh, Noam Chomsky has gotten so many facts empirically wrong, and of course referring to the, the Chomsky claim about the Khmer Rouge in the late 1970s. Now Chomsky responded in ZMAG, which is the uh, kind of alternative publication of choice for the Chomsky and left. And then most recently, uh, Zizek replied on the Verso blog. But, um, but again, this for me, this all boils down to the question of, of rationalism and what the praxis, what the practical politics of the two theorists entails. I think Chomsky's project has always been about telling the people and removing the blinders of what he would see as ideology and mass propaganda systems, kind of a 1920s, uh, excuse me, 19, 20th century style propaganda system cultivated in the 1920s by the likes of Walter Lippmann and, and Edward Bernays, and whereas Chomsky talks about ideology as lived in and through kind of personal everyday experiences and it's the narratives the stories we tell about ourselves it's not this mass propaganda top down system but listen why don't we start with you know what's the utility of, of how chomsky conceptualizes propaganda and ideology well i mean to me it seems like the the debate boils down to as you said this idea between um you know logic uh, yeah. sort of a vehicle of science mm -hmm. and philosophy. Um, you know, basically, 
you know, is politics rooted in what's going on in people's own heads mm. or is politics rooted on what's really happening on the ground? And I guess when you, when you think of it that way, it's necessarily got to be both. But yes. if you... It, it seems like these two academics, maybe from their own experiences, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, the the situations that they've been in politically, um, tend to favor one more than the other. Uh, sure, that's what happens in academia. You know, people yeah. take their turf and where where Zizek would say to Chomsky, "Well, look, you know, uh, you might say everything you want about the facts on the ground, mm-hmm. but some people just aren't receptive to truth and logic. They don't want to hear it. They're yeah, not absolutely. interested." And I, it seems to me like Chomsky's sort of. Uh, Weariness of Zizek. I mean, it, it seemed like a defensive reaction. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Now, Chomsky. Listen, he doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. He's paid his dues as an activist, as a you know freedom fighter and rebel without a pause. You know, that's without doubt. Now, it's it, it's 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 remarkable how everything that Zizek does in response to Chomsky is couched in you know it's admiration, respect, and you know long distance you know runner, freedom fighter, all this kind of stuff. Whereas Chomsky, it is just blatant, this is charlatanism, without actually any kind of theoretical engagement. Now Abe's going to cut in and... Uh, well, it just strikes me that his frustration sort of stems from a place that I'm familiar with, yep. which is sort of like the the indeterminate nature of what sort of Zizek is arguing. You know, mm-hmm. Zizek's basically saying, I don't have the answers, Absolutely. but we need to examine these paradigms. Chomsky's looking for a definitive answer. Absolutely. So are a lot of people. So the idea that there may not be one mm. is quite threatening. Oh, and actually, that's that's Hegelianism. Sorry, to, uh, f- that is the essence of Hegelianism for Zizek. That's his, his new book, Less Than Nothing, is is about the fact that there is... There is no kind of guarantor of history. There's no teleological logic. And what I mean by teleology here is the kind of left logic that, you know, crisis is good for movements on the left. The, The, you know, crisis of capitalism will lead to an inevitable consolidation and activism on the left. Um, we've seen some of that, but we've seen a lot of energy on the right, um, which I would think kind of backs to, to what Zizek is saying here. And and the, the kind of left projects of the 20th century, uh, including Leninism uh, and, and, and communism as it was conceived in the 20th century, was always like, the people will come to know, and the inevitable awakening and mass consciousness of the people will be there eventually. And Zizek is saying, look, there's no kind of grand... There's no guarantor of our struggle, and and that's hard for people to accept. And and I, you know, one of the things that uh, that Chomsky does in all his public lectures, and I understand this, is he always ends on some kind of like Pollyanna optimism. Positive hope. note. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, and this is American. This is the American psyche. Americans just can't get bummed out. They can't <laughs> actually. This is this is this is a problem with Americans. So I understand why he has to do it, but. Sorry, that's just not that's just not the case. Like there there may not be reasons for hope. Nevertheless, we still struggle. We still look for those answers. And just just one one kind of last thing about uh that you know, people don't respond to kind of Zizek's negativity. I mean, there's a certain level at which he says, "Look, what we've gone through the motions of on the left and how we reflexively reflexively respond to power on the left." could be part of the problem. I mean, and, and one of the great examples for him is the anti-war protest movement uh, of, of 2003 in response to the kind of emerging, uh, un- oncoming war uh, in Iraq. And there was mass, I mean, maybe the greatest kind of mass protest around the world ever. 
Um, but it was once once it had, the war had been declared, everybody went home and folded up camp, you know. Mm. And and in a sense, that kind of reflexive reflexive way of doing politics was maybe even part of the problem, and maybe even legitimized the whole kind of freedom agenda of Bush. Like you know, Bush could respond to the protests and say, well, let, hey, this is why we're going to war because we can have protests, we can have a democracy, and all of this stuff. So that's a you know that's quite a slap in the face to tell people that maybe you know you and your form of activism maybe reinforce the system i mean that's uh well yeah i hate to be in the you know position where i say they're both right but Mm -hmm. i am going to kind of say that and i mean like it didn't happen in a vacuum that example of the iraq war was in the context of post seattle um you know the deep state in the u.s under both clinton and bush had gone to a concerted effort to essentially um you know target protest leaders destroy the movement structurally um use what we now know is called prism to actually mm. sort of affect changes in a certain direction it wasn't just necessarily the attitude or the sentiment of the movement while at the same time you know i think um Chomsky is very disillusioned by this, you know, indeterminate uh, mm. nature. And you gave the example off air of if Chomsky is 1999 Seattle, yeah. then Zizek is 2011 Occupy. Yeah. So um, I think uh, Zizek has a point in the sense that, you know, you just can't argue with some people. They're fascists at heart. They don't want the facts. Yeah. Chomsky's a little bit more idealistic, like I used to be, maybe, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure which side I fall on now, but I've definitely encountered some fascistic bigots in the past who feel like they don't want to hear, you know, any facts or debate. Um, so, yeah, there's something I mean, to be said for both. There is, a, listen, the example of, of the anti-Semite, the working class anti-Semite, who the socialists would say, look, no, your enemy is not the Jew, the enemy is capitalism. Listen, they've invested. This this is what uh, Zizek talks about in in psychoanalytic terms about fetishistic investment. They've invested in the figure of the Jew. You know, all of this uh, preying on young Christian women, of being aristocratic and financial manipulators, but also being dirty and unclean and all. So they've invested a whole kind of laundry list of, like, you know, their pet peeves. And it's easier to kind of stay attached to the fetish than it is to kind of tear yourself from that identity that you've invested in. And that's, mm. the, that's the problem of you can't necessarily talk a working class anti-Semite, racist. Uh, I'm thinking of New Zealand first voters here. <laughs> Uh, you can't talk them out of their Islamophobia or anti-Chinese sentiment or whatever it is because that's the kind of core crux of of what it is that they are, you know, I invested in as a form of their identity and and it's the myth it helps protect the myth of like capitalism as this just order so we can you know winston peters can rail against foreign investment and and chinese buying whatever it is and but actually preserve a myth that if that wasn't happening capitalism would actually work as a just morally reconciled order so that's that's the problem of 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 rationalism and the humanism that's kind of at the heart of Chomsky's project. And I mean, and just to come back to the indeterminacy of Occupy, I mean, I think, you know, Zizek is not going to lay out a blueprint, and a lot of people want to struggle and, and to a blueprint, to a plan. You know, things just don't work out that way historically. Or, you know, Lenin, you know, months before the revolution of, you know, of the February revolution was like, well, look, maybe it'll happen in my lifetime, maybe it won't. You know, so academics and these kinds of intellectual figures don't have the key to kind of show us the way. And I think that's, that's you know, that's how he sees himself. 
Um, and, and some of the problems with Occupy are the more anarchistic tendencies, the lack of a kind of regimented, disciplined, you know, uh, kind of structure. And, and hey, Chomsky's an anarchist, so what can I say? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all uh, pretty up in the air. But um, as I said, I mean, I think... I think there's elements of truth to both. Um, certainly, it's going to be hard to change the anti-Semites' viewpoint with logic, uh, just, you know, coming in with straight logic, but uh, or the Tea Partiers, for that matter. But that doesn't mean that you can't make the argument to them in a way that they're receptive at a certain moment in time. Yep, um, yep. Part of that might sound a little bit of Machiavellian, like tricking them. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's for a, uh, a noble purpose, then... That's yeah. a philosophical question. And I think that this is a dichotomy in all politics throughout human history, mm. which is why this show exists, and we're probably yeah. going to discuss it more and more. But, you know, are people smart enough to determine their own fate, mm. or do they need some sort of benevolent leader to tell them what to do because they're not? Well, we have examples of both. Mm. And I certainly feel like I am smart enough to educate myself, assimilate the information, use logic to deliberate, and make choices for myself. But I've certainly been in situations where I have um, tried to extend my ability for that capacity to others, and I've been gravely disappointed. So Absolutely. I can see where these, um, you yeah, know, dictators this, have arisen. This is this is the dead end here. And I think uh, just to bring it back to the to the question of of how we deal with the anti-Semite, the Tea Party, or the New Zealand First voter, uh, or, or whatever it is. Not saying that they're all no, the same person. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> Some exactly. of them might be. Um, but. There's a thing that Zizek talks about, which is anti-liberal. He is a he is an opponent of liberalism, liberalism as this rational consensus-building project, and it's something that listen at Occupy General Assemblies with with sparkle fingers and 90 percent <laughs> uh, sorry what 90 percent uh, thresholds to pass motions. You know, at a certain at a certain level, sparkle finger sparkle fingers has to come to an end. Now, what what Zizek would describe as politics is like antagonism. And where the fascists kind of speak a certain truth is in embodying uh, antagonism in the social space, in mm. politics. And where the liberal wants to disavow that antagonism at all costs and kind of rationally and consensually smooth over those. So we might not actually be able to uh, you know, talk an anti-Semite down to our position, but embodying a kind of ag- antagonistic discourse about, you know, us people versus capital or whatever it may be, we may bring them to our cause on the strength of, of you know, antagonism as a political force. And I think that's what you're seeing in Egypt, because you're seeing mass movements kind of swing wildly between democracy, between pro-military, mm. I mean, and, and Islamism. there's... Absolutely. There's, it's all over the map. It's all over the map because you have different kind of political forces and leadership, uh, in a sense, playing to that sense of politics, to antagonism. And a prime example of that, I mean, people who self-identified as Tea Partiers were found at Occupy. You know, not there lots, some. but there were some. There, there, were, there were some. And I think that's... And actually... You know, during the heyday of of the Tea Party in the U.S., there was something like you know 50% of the public expressed a certain amount of sympathy for them, and I think that's you know the 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 message of the government is a bad player in well, our that, economy. Well, yeah, that was post financial crisis. Yeah, Everyone true. was against anything institutional for yeah. that brief moment. Absolutely. So you could see how an Occupy message, in by virtue of its antagonism, could bring those kinds of people uh, sympathetically to its to its side for sure. All right, listen, this has been a very fruitful discussion. We'd love to hear from you at on on the Twitters, 
at Radio 1, at Ojutel. Uh, I want to just play out with one thing from Zizek. Zizek is uh, a public intellectual who's a bit eclectic, and he likes to tell a lot of dirty jokes. Um, I certainly haven't gotten the dirtiest of the dirty jokes, but I've got one for us here. You're listening to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised on Radio 1. In the good old days of really existing socialism, a joke was popular among dissidents. A joke used to illustrate the futility of their protests. In the 15th century Russia, occupied by Mongols, that's the joke, a farmer and his wife walk along a dusty country road. A Mongol warrior on a horse stops at their side and tells the farmer that he will now rape his wife. He then adds, but since there is a lot of dust on the ground, you should hold my testicles while I am raping your wife so that they will not get dusty, dirty. After the Mongol finishes his job and rides away, the farmer starts to laugh and jump with joy. The surprised wife asks him, how can you be jumping with joy when I was just brutally raped? The farmer answers, but I got him, his balls are full of dust. <laughs> this sad joke tells of the predicament of dissidents. They thought they were dealing serious blows to the party nomenclatura, but all they were doing were, well, getting a little bit of dust on the nomenclatura's testicles. <laughs> Is today's critical left all too often not in a similar position? We think we are doing something terribly subversive, we are just... Our task is to discover how to make a step further. Our thesis 11 today should be, critical leftists have hitherto only dirtied with dust the balls of those in power. The point is to cut them off.